Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 62. And if you need a Bible, as we always say, we want you to be able to have one to look on with, so raise your hand, we'll bring one to you. Be bold, keep your hand up. Isaiah 62 is on page 621 in the Bibles that we're passing out. This passage talks about prayer, this chapter. And in in my early years as a Christian, early years of trusting Jesus, I had a really hard time uh, being motivated to pray. Uh, It was really a struggle for me. I mean, I, I loved reading the Bible. I enjoyed reading Christian books. But when it came to prayer, it was just just hard for, for a number of years. And as I look back now and try to think through why that was, I, I think a big part of my problem was I didn't see why prayer was so important. I didn't really see the, the need for it. I mean, I think this is what I was thinking. If God is sovereign over everything, you know, which I believe that he is, and if he will accomplish all of his purposes, which the scriptures teach that he will, well, then what's the point of praying, right? Will prayer make any difference? Will the lack of prayer make any difference or the presence of prayer make any difference? And, and I, I would guess probably some of you have the same struggle. I mean, if God is sovereign over everything, then won't he do what he's going to do anyway, whether we pray or not, right? Anybody else have that problem? Just, just me. Okay, just, all right. And, uh, What I love, though, about the Lord is that he answers those kinds of questions in the word. That's a huge question. It's an important question. And he answers it in many places in the scriptures, and one of them is right here in Isaiah chapter 62. Let me give you a quick outline of the chapter, and then we're going to dig into it. It kind of breaks down into four parts. He starts off talking about prayer. Isaiah starts off talking about prayer in verse 1. He describes his own commitment to prayer. Then in verses 2 through 5, he talks about God's promises what God has promised to do for his people. Then in verses 6 through 7, we read more about prayer. Isaiah calls all of God's people to follow his example in verse 1 of praying. And then in verses 8 through 11, we read more about God's promises, what God promises to do for Israel. So I thought the starting point in getting this passage into our hearts is, let's look at what God has promised. Okay, What has God promised to do for his people in this chapter? Now remember, the setting of Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, these chapters, this last third of the book of Isaiah, was written to give encouragement especially to Israel during the time when she's in exile in Babylon as slaves. So you try to put yourself in their shoes a little bit, okay? You were living in Israel, but Babylon came and laid siege to you there in Jerusalem, for so long that people were starving to death. There were corpses littering the streets. Finally, Babylon was able to invade, slaughtering thousands and thousands, and the rest, for the most part, were taken to Babylon in chains as slaves. The temple had been burned down. The walls had been leveled. Israel was demolished, and there you were, enslaved in Babylon. And God had Isaiah write these chapters 40 through 66, to be read by you in that setting to bring you encouragement. So what did God promise to do for his people? Now, one more thought before we look at the promises. Remember, we've seen from the book of Isaiah that God's people isn't just racial Jews. God's people is everyone, Jew or Gentile, who trusts in Israel's God and his Messiah, Jesus. So you... 
If you're a Gentile, if you're trusting Israel's God and Israel's Messiah, Jesus, you are one of God's people. So these promises apply to you as well. So let's take a look. What does God promise to do for his people? Four main categories. First of all, he promises that all peoples and kings will see the righteousness and glory of his people. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, the nations, all the people groups, shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. We'll see what that name is in a moment. There's a number of them. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So all peoples, all kings are going to see God's people shining with righteousness and glory. That's the first one. Second promise. God will no longer forsake Israel, but will delight in her. Remember, Israel had just suffered terrible punishment because of her ongoing idolatry. Terrible punishment, but in the future, no more punishment. God's going to delight in her. Look at verses 4 and 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, but your land, or and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, here's one of these new names, my delight is in her, and your land will be called married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, God's people will be complete, joined together, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So God will no longer forsake Israel. He's going to delight in her. Verses 4 and 5. Then third, never again will God allow his people to be plundered. Okay, they've just had plundered, just demolished, but look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again Give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall drink shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Never again plundered. No more suffering, no more affliction, no more difficulty. Never again. That's what God's going to do. And then last, most important, God himself will come and redeem his people. Verses 11 and 12 give a promise of the Messiah coming, God coming to earth in the Messiah. Verse 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. That's referring to the Messiah. You can see that in the next line. Behold, his, the Messiah's, reward is with him, and his recompense before him. So God's going to come to earth in the person of the Messiah, and then here's the result. Verse 12, they shall be called the holy people. Because of what the Messiah Jesus does, God's people will be holy. They'll be the redeemed of the Lord. You shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Okay, let me summarize these promises with a little bit of help from the New Testament. Remember, if you are a Gentile trusting in Israel's God and Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, these promises are for you. So here's what God promises. He's going to send his Messiah. And we've seen from Isaiah who that is. It's Jesus. All the prophecies about Jesus. And Jesus is going to redeem his people. 
He's going to redeem them from sin's guilt by dying on the cross. And he's going to redeem them from sin's power through the resurrection, breaking sin's power, breaking death's power. So Jesus, death on the cross, resurrection, will set his people free from sin's guilt and sin's power. And so Jew or Gentile, whenever somebody puts their trust in Jesus, completely forgiven for all their sins, clothed in Jesus' righteousness, like Elvira, you mentioned, you read that verse from Zephaniah, I love that, set free from sin's power, gradually growing, growing more and more righteous, and the result is that God's people will shine with righteousness and glory. And then they will spread through the whole world, shining with righteousness and glory, and all peoples and all kings will see and say, whoa, look at this righteous people, look at this glorified people, And they'll come to faith in the Messiah. Every nation, tongue, and tribe will have people coming to faith. And then when that purpose of God is finished, all of God's people will be brought into a place where they will never suffer again, never be plundered again, never be afflicted again, never die, never mourn, never weep again. That's the promise. Now, how certain is it that God will fulfill these promises? These are amazing promises. And I should just mention, by the way, You could experience these promises if you're not trusting Jesus Christ yet. Trust him now. Turn to him. Trust him. You'll become one of God's people. And this will be your certain and sure destiny because of how certain it is that God will fulfill these promises. How certain is it? Twice in this chapter, we see God emphasizing the certainty that he's going to do it. First is verse 8. Look at what he says. Isaiah 62, 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm that he will fulfill these promises. So God says, I swear to you by my right hand. You've never seen God's right hand. He's got a big, strong right hand. And he says, I swear to you by my mighty arm. His arm is ripped. He says, he's got a massive right arm. And so God in verse, what was that verse again? Anyway, whatever verse it was, says, I swear to you by my right hand and by my mighty arm, I will fulfill these promises. This will happen. And then look also at what he says in verse 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, your salvation comes, the Messiah will come. So God has proclaimed it to the whole world here in this, in this chapter 62, verse 11. Proclaim to the whole earth, I'm going to do this. So how certain is it that this is going to happen? It is pretty certain, huh, Jim? It is absolutely certain that this is going to happen. He says, I swear to you by my right hand and my arm, I proclaim to the whole earth, I will fulfill these promises. I will do it. Now, What's surprising, though, is then what Isaiah calls God's people to do about these promises. This is very interesting. I want you to see this, because this raises all the questions about God's sovereignty and our prayer and the whole thing. Notice what Isaiah calls God's people to do about his promises. Here, God has just sworn, I am going to fulfill all these promises. And then Isaiah tells God's people, pray and ask God to do these promises. Very puzzling. Look at verse 1. This is what Isaiah says he himself does. He prays that God will fulfill these promises. Verse 1. He says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silence. 
So I'm not going to stop praying for Zion's sake, for the sake of God's people. That's what Zion refers to. For the sake of God's people, I will not keep silent. I will not stop praying. And for Jerusalem's sake, for the sake of God's people, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Hasn't God promised that Israel's righteousness and salvation would go forth to all the nations? Yes. And here Isaiah says, I'm not going to stop praying until you do this, God. And then verse 6 and 7, Isaiah calls all of God's people to follow his example. Verse 6, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. What do these watchmen do? All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. So all day long and all night long, They're praying. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So even though God has promised, has sworn, has declared to the whole world, he's going to fulfill all these promises Isaiah calls God's people to not stop praying, to pray and not stop, not give themselves any rest until God does what he's promised to do. Now, pondering this teaches us some just really crucial truths about prayer. I'm praying that, that this morning, for some of you, maybe for all of us, it's been, it's been this way for me this week, that this morning will be a a, a reminding, I want something stronger than that, a, a waking up about how important prayer is. I mean, I've seen my own heart over the last, I don't know, we tend to go have ups and downs, and, and, I've, and I've kind of, I, I realized this passage, God's just said, Steve, you've, you've lost a little bit of your edge about the necessity and the urgency of persisting in prayer. And so this has been a good week for me. And I'm praying that God will do this for all of us. What does God teach us about prayer in in this chapter? I'd like to focus on three truths which have really helped me to rethink my theology, my understanding of prayer, and and it stirred me to pray more. The first truth is this. God has chosen to have our prayers move him to act. God has chosen that your prayer my prayer in Jesus' name will move God to act. So you might think our prayers don't affect God. Anybody ever heard somebody say or teach or write a book that says, you know, prayer isn't so much about changing your circumstances or changing God. Prayer is about changing you. Anybody heard that? Okay. Um, yes, prayer is about changing you. But no, it's not true that prayer doesn't change any circumstances. I mean, read, I remember I did a study once, uh, just through the scripture, listing prayers and then what happened as a result of those prayers. Change circumstance. Change circumstance. Change circumstance. Change circumstance. It's change, change, change. God, work, work. God works. God, do this. God does this. Boom, boom, boom. Yes, prayer changes you. And yes, prayer changes your circumstances. And look right here at how Isaiah puts this in verse 7. Bold language here, Isaiah to jolt us. He says, and give him no rest until he, God, establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. 
You are to give God no rest until he does these promises. Don't let God rest. Keep asking him. Keep calling upon him until he does it. The point is that our prayer affects God. God has chosen in his sovereignty to have our prayers move him to act. That's how God's chosen to set things up. Our prayer will move God to do what he's promised to do. So let's just kind of get the picture here. So, so here's God, and God has promised, he has sworn, he's going to send the Messiah, right? The Messiah is going to redeem God's people. People will, Gentiles, Jews will be trusting the Messiah, set free from sin's guilt, set free from sin's power. Jesus will transform them. They're going to be shining with righteousness and glory, So God has promised to do these things. And then God has chosen to have it be our prayers that move God to do that. Now, does God like need our prayers to do that? Does he like need, I need some harmonic convergence here. If we could all just get together and hmm together or something, I'm just, I'm not quite strong enough to do this yet. No, God could do that like with both hands tied behind his back. He does not need us to totally do that. And yet he has chosen to have our prayers have an essential, integral part in what God does. God has chosen that it'll be our prayers that will move him to do what he's purposed to do. Now, why why would God do that? Again, God could have just said, I'm just going to do it. You guys just stand aside and watch. But he doesn't. He says, I promise to do this through your prayers. Your prayers are going to be essential for this taking place. Now, why would God make prayer? I mean, here's, here's God, and there's what he's going to do. Why would he make our prayer a crucial part of this process? I thought of three reasons. And they're all, they all show God's love for us. It's because God loves us. Okay? One, one reason God makes prayer so essential is because when you pray, what's happening? You're, you're, you're talking to God. You're, through Jesus, clothed in his perfect righteousness, you're, you're coming to the throne of grace, whoever shared that scripture from Hebrews 4 earlier during the spiritual gifts time, and there is no greater joy the human heart can have than coming into intimate relationship with God through the person of Jesus. And so God says, you want this to happen over here? Pray, because that'll move us to pray, and then we'll pray and Oh, you're awesome. I love talking to you. I love beholding you. I love intimate fellowship with you. So that's the first reason God does this, is because it gives us the joy of relationship with him. A second reason is, it gives your life amazing significance. Astonishing significance. Here's how Blaise Pascal put it. Kind of a hard sentence to understand, but here's the quote. God ordains prayer to give us the dignity of causality. Okay, sounds kind of... Anyway, the point is, God has given you the gift of prayer so that your life can mean something, so that your life can, can, um, can be part of accomplishing God's cosmic global work of advancing the gospel. You can take 10 minutes this afternoon, go into your bedroom, close the door, kneel down by your bed, and you can pray for God to increase the advance of the gospel in Burma. And the gospel will advance in Burma. 
you here in San Jose, all by yourself, little you in your bedroom praying. And God says, oh, yes, that's the gospel in Burma. So we should never be bored, right? I mean, you could go and advance the gospel in like New Zealand or Pakistan, right? Or your workplace. This is huge. So prayer gives our lives great meaning. Third reason. So first, the joy of relationship with him. Prayer gives our lives great meaning. And then prayer displays God's glory. Think, think of it like this. Let's say that the Philistines are attacking Israel. And all of a sudden the Philistines run away. Yeah, lucky Israel. <laughs> but they're really lucky. Now think of how different it would have been if Israel would have prayed. So Philistines are attacking Israel. Israel, God, deliver us. Turn the Philistines back, we pray. They pray, Philistines, ah, and they turn back and run away. You'd say, God is awesome, right? That's why God works in response to prayer, so everyone can see it's God who's working. It's not just chance or luck or whatever. But so I want you to just feel this truth. God has chosen to have our prayers move him to act. Our prayers make a massive difference. Second truth, just to press this a little bit deeper, if we don't pray, in many cases God won't act. Look at verse 1. Isaiah says, For Zion's sake, that is, for the sake of God's people, I will not keep silent. So just... Isn't this what he's saying? He's saying, for the, for the benefit of God's people, I'm not going to stop praying. Which would mean if I stopped praying, God's people would not benefit as much. Isn't that right? His prayers will benefit God's people. If he is silent, they won't be benefited as much. If we don't pray, in many cases, God won't act. Now, here's a tough question. This is really... I mean, this is tough for me. Maybe you guys can answer this, but it was a hard one for me to think about. So if Isaiah did not pray, would these promises not come true? Hmm. If Isaiah did not pray, would these promises not come true? Here's what helped me answer that question. Okay, just two thoughts. In your notes there. One thought is, God sovereignly moves people to pray for those things he has absolutely promised to do. So here's the big target. Here's God. He's promised, I'm going to send my Messiah. Now he's also said he works through prayer. So what does God do? He said, is somebody going to pray? God, pray. Nobody's praying. Pray. Nobody's praying. Is this going to happen? No. What God does is he brings his power upon, in fact, is this reference in your notes? Luke 2.37. Read about Anna. You don't need to turn there right now, but read about Anna. Anna is a woman, beginning of Luke, in her 80s. She'd been a widow for 50 years. She was a prophetess. And Luke says she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So God has absolutely promised to send the Messiah. And God sovereignly moves Anna and hundreds like her to pray that God will send the Messiah. 
And so God will do what he's promised to do, and he sovereignly works so that people will pray for the things that he has absolutely promised to do. Our prayers are of the uttermost significance, and God will fulfill his promises. Both are absolutely true. Okay? Second truth, just on on this point, is that there's also things God would have done that he does not do because we do not pray. This is taught all through God's word. I mean, just think about James chapter 4, verse 2. We have not because we ask not. That's right there, right? We have not. Why? Because we asked not. Would God have given us that if we would have asked him? Yes. That's the clear implication of James chapter 4, verse 2. There's things we don't have because we don't ask. I mean, I want want you to really feel the weightiness of this. You may not have had the wisdom this last week that you could have had if you would have asked God for wisdom this last week. Remember the story about the Gibeonites in Judges uh, 9, I think it is? Remember the Gibeonites had traveled for a long, long ways? No, I'm sorry. They traveled for a short ways because they should have been killed by Joshua and God's people, but they dressed up and looked like they'd been traveling from way, way far away. You don't need to kill us. We're not in the promised land. You know, make a treaty with us. We'll serve you. And, and Joshua said, oh, okay, whatever. And, and Judges chapter 9, I forget the verse, says he did not ask counsel from God. There was wisdom God would have given Joshua if Joshua would have asked. He had not because he asked not. So it may be that there's wisdom you could have had this last week that you didn't get because you didn't ask for it. Maybe there's spiritual power over temptation that you could have had last week that you didn't have because you didn't ask for it. Right? You have not because you ask not. See, that verse right there makes prayer so important. Remember the story in, um, I can't think of what chapter it's in, but it's where the man brings his demonized son to Jesus. Remember that story? Tragic situation with this boy. This demon was on this son, and he would make him have seizures right at the moment he was walking by like an open fire pit to make him fall into the open fire pit. So this demon would do. Or he would have him have seizures the moment he was walking by like a, a canyon or like a lake, so he'd fall in and drown. That was his intention. So this poor father is just terrorized. You can imagine not knowing you know, when your son's going to have a seizure and fall. And, and, and so he brings the boy to the disciples. He's heard good things about the disciples. Could you cast the demon out of my son? The disciples say, yeah, oh yes, we can. And they, they tried to cast him out. But what didn't they do? They didn't pray. And they couldn't cast the demon out. And the demon's not coming out. And the father just goes away with the boy crestfallen. A little later, Jesus comes. I'm not sure how much time went by. And the disciples asked, or Jesus, Jesus then cast the demon out of the boy. Okay, Jesus does it, right? Voice freed, fathers, it's, it's a wonderful story. But the disciples go to Jesus and say, why couldn't we cast it out? He says, you didn't pray. Because you didn't pray. God would have freed this boy and the father earlier had the disciples prayed. Because they didn't pray, God didn't. So there's things that God would do, would have done, that he doesn't do because we don't pray. That's what the Bible teaches, right? Okay, now, does that raise any questions in your mind? Let's just stop here, because I don't want to go ahead 
until, I mean, this raises all kinds of questions I can't answer, but, well, just a couple thoughts, and, 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 and we'll, let's preach on fasting sometime, we'll do that. Um, most, the, the oldest manuscripts of Matthew don't mention and fasting. Okay, so the, the oldest Greek copies of Matthew don't mention it. Some later ones do. And the King James is based on some later ones. Okay, it's not quite as accurate. All right. And one of the reasons why I don't think that's what Jesus meant, not only the, the textual evidence, but remember, remember what Jesus said about, um, about fasting? Did, did Jesus and his disciples fast? No. They didn't fast. This isn't the time to fast. The bridegroom is here. Fast when the bridegroom is gone. So wouldn't it be strange for Jesus to say they should have prayed and fasted if they weren't fasting? They, they fasted later. We see fasting in the book of Acts. Okay. Now, having said that, though, the bridegroom is now gone. This is the time to do fasting. And things like fasting and things like praying with other people, those all increase even more in God's sovereign grace the way that prayer touches God's heart. So fasting is very important, and praying with others is very important. But So that, that's my understanding of Matthew 17. Does that make sense? Does persistence make a difference, right? Um, Luke 11 and 13. Remember, Luke 11 is the story of the uh, somebody's knocking at your door at midnight. Is that how it goes? And... Uh, no, you, no, a guest comes to your house and you don't have any food. Big faux pas in, in that you know, Mediterranean culture. So you go to your neighbor at midnight. George, George, I got a neighbor. Uncle Sam came by, you know, and we need, I need some food. It's midnight. Give him breakfast. I got donuts for you tomorrow morning. No, you know, so, and, and Jesus' punchline is, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet, because of his persistence, he will give him as much as he needs. It's Luke uh, 17.9, I think it is. And so, yes, persistence is also an important factor. Yes. Uh, I, I take comfort in the fact that Paul experienced the same thing in 2 Corinthians 12. Because he prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh would be removed. And God said, no, no. Um, the kindest, most loving thing I could do for you, Paul, is to have it stay because you're going to experience even more of my nearness and grace and power through this difficulty. So persistence does not mean uh, every prayer will be answered that's persistently prayed for, even if you pray with groups of people and even if you throw fasting in the mix. My understanding of, of prayer in terms of why prayers aren't answered is that God, always, if you pray in Jesus' name, when we talked about an unanswered prayer a few weeks ago, in, in I forget what chapter it was in Isaiah, it's 58, I think it is. No, it's 50, 59. Um, but every time you pray in Jesus' name earnestly, God will always give you either exactly what you ask for or something even better. Every time. And the, so the thorn of the flesh staying was better for Paul. And so I would encourage you that God not answering that prayer was a greater gift than him, him saying yes to that prayer. But you can keep praying and get wisdom from him as you're, if, if you want to keep praying about it, he'll give you clarity like he did with Paul. Does that help? Yep. One, it, can be years. it can certainly be years. Don't I, give up. Yes, 
Yes. I mean, boy, that's a whole other topic, but yes, absolutely. Yeah, anybody heard that? It's the idea that if you really believed God, you'd only pray once. If you really had faith, you'd only pray once. You've got to pray twice, well, you know, then you aren't really trusting him. The Bible just does not bear that out. I mean, right here, we're to give God no rest until he does it. So right here, persistence is huge, right? Uh, Luke, uh, whatever that passage was, about, you know, persistence. Paul prayed three times. The Greek of ask and it'll be given to you, I think is ask and keep asking. Knock and keep knocking. Seek and keep seeking. So there's persistence. So the scripture just nowhere teaches that. That's all I can say. It's just just not in the book. Persistence is is called for, is is urged, is encouraged. And again, when you understand too that prayer is the most heart-satisfying activity a human can do, it's like God saying, you've got to keep eating ice cream (laughs) every day. Pile it on, triple scoops, okay? Right? I mean, because again, prayer is the most heart-satisfying activity of the human heart, is to just talk to your father, come before him, and you're, you're asking him, but he'll meet you. Anyway, some other hands are up. I've, I've asked that question for me, too. And uh, I don't think the scriptures let us off the hook with that issue. It'd be nice if they did, be comforting. Uh, Paul says things like, how will they hear if they don't have a preacher? Romans 10. And Paul's answer is not, God will take care of it some other way. Paul's answer is, they won't. Now God will give you, he'll, 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 if I've done something, let's talk about me, if, if I have neglected, and I, I have, and you know what, we all have. No believer has prayed as faithfully for lost people or has witnessed as boldly as we should have. So all of us are in the same boat. That's helpful. Okay, so we're all here. And so what do we do? I don't think the scripture says it's, it's okay. It doesn't make any difference. I think the scripture says, take it to Jesus. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to help you. He will pour his love upon you. He will comfort you with his forgiveness. And he'll give you assurance that he will grow you and keep, keep strengthening you for the next time. That's my answer. Does that make sense, anybody? Or anybody want to... Th- th- the scriptures don't let us off the hook. Because if, if we said, it'll be okay, then all of a sudden, whether you do witness or doesn't, doesn't make any difference. Whether you do pray or doesn't, doesn't make any difference. The Bible does not let us say that. It makes a huge difference. Both for the significance of your life and your witness and your prayer, and for the pain when we have failed. So, but Jesus forgives us. We turn back and the father busts out the fattened calf and lights up the Barbie and, and we're good. Okay? So that's where we live. It's okay. Let's move on now. If you have other questions, ask your home group leader and they will answer them <laughs> for you. Okay. Here's the third truth and it's, it's just simply that because prayer is so important, we should be devoted to it. I hope you're already feeling that. That prayer is getting dialed up. And, and look at, again, verses 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. What does it mean to take no rest? It means don't stop. Don't stop. 
Why? Because God has chosen to have our prayers move him to do what he's already promised to do. Our prayers are essential in what God is doing. He's chosen that by his mercy to give us great joy in him. Take no rest. And so just, I mean, think about it. Your prayer can, can make the difference in the salvation of your family members. Right? That is huge. Huge for me. Your prayer can make a difference in, in your marriage. Some marital struggles there. Your prayer can make the difference. Your giving God no rest can make the difference in the power of the Spirit being poured out upon your home group. It's huge. Your, your prayer can make the difference in people being saved at your workplace, in your neighborhood, you know, in Finland, right? Your prayers, you, because of Jesus' mercy and grace, giving you this amazing, the, the dignity of causality, as Blaise Pascal put it, your prayers can make the difference. So can you see how devoted we should be to prayer? Now, Jesus calls us to do other things besides pray. Okay, he calls you to work at your job. You don't get to quit your job and just say, okay, he calls you to work at your job. Work hard, do excellently, you know, be faithful there, provide for your family. He calls you to, to love your wife, to communicate with her, to talk with her, to, to pray with her. He calls you to, you know, to take your kids and go play football with them, right? He calls you to take care of your family. He calls you to get exercise. He calls you to get rest. He calls you to sleep. He calls you to eat, right? So there's lots of other things he calls you to do that are all just as important, but prayer is also of vital importance. So just what are some, maybe there's some time you could carve out to increase prayer some more. Let me just tell you one encouraging story and then we'll wrap up. This is about my grandma being devoted to prayer. I've told some of you part of this story, but never from this angle. My dad, when he was in his early 20s, he was hired on at a, at a big, big church. This is, you know, early 1900s. Everybody knew about it in the Christian world and he stood up to give his first sermon and he froze. And he couldn't complete it. He just, he just, he like had a breakdown. They had to help him off the stage. Everybody knew he was hired by this church and everybody knew his utter shameful failure. He was let go. And he was so gripped by shame and guilt. I mean, the whole Christian world was talking about it, you know, because my, my grandfather was a famous evangelist and so it was all, all this connection anyway. He was so gripped by shame and guilt that he had to be institutionalized. And the doctors told my grandparents, he's probably never going to be able to be out of here. And my grandma, every day in the afternoon, would drive and park. They, they wouldn't let them go in to see him. But she would park on the side street right next to the uh, mental hospital there, and she would pray for him every day. And then here's what he says happened. He says one afternoon he was lying there just overwhelmed with guilt, and a verse came into his mind that he had heard in a seminary class. Um, that said that Jesus died for our sins once for all. And that truth that Jesus had died for his guilt and for his shame, had paid for his guilt and his shame, and so he could, by trusting Jesus, be freed from his guilt and his shame, he says in a moment, he put his trust in Christ and the guilt and shame lifted. I mean, just lifted off him. And he sat up, I don't want to overstate. I don't have, he didn't tell me the exact time. I need to ask him on the details. But, but very, very, very soon. It might have been that, that afternoon or evening or the next day. They let him, they let him out. Let him go. Because he, he, he was, he's fine. He's fine. Persistence in prayer. Devotion to prayer. So I want to call you to be devoted to prayer. Now this does not mean that you leave here saying, me, by my willpower, I'm going to start praying more. That's not Christianity. Everything happens through trusting Jesus. We say, because apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Thank you. Okay. 
So nothing is not praying, okay? If you want to pray, you don't do it apart from Jesus. You trust him. Say, Jesus, change my heart. Help me to want to pray. Where might there be a segment of an extra 10, 15, 20 minutes where I could pray? Um, re- remove my doubts about prayer, my questions about prayer. Help me to pray. So trust Jesus. Everything is flows from faith. Trust Jesus. And then start praying. That's what I want to call you to do. So let's stand. I want to pray this over us. I want to pray this over us, all right? Lord, I ask that you would, this week, for many of us here in this room, for Mercy Hill Church as a whole, would you work in us so that this week we would each see you by your power as we're trusting you, Jesus, making us want to pray more, making us long to pray more, showing us when we could pray more, and satisfying our hearts as we pray more. I pray that you would do that for us, Lord. We, we repent before you and confess that, this for me, Lord, other things, we're starting to kind of squeeze prayer out. And forgive me for that, forgive any of us for that, where we need to confess that to you. And Lord, this week, raise us up as a church to a whole new level of devotion to prayer. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.